Well, one of the hazards of staying with your brother when he's a pastor is that you and or your family might find your way into the sermon that Sunday. Uh, So just to reiterate before I roll into my opening story here, uh, I have a niece staying with me, Sienna, who is four. And if you didn't know, we have a dog in my house. Um, I hesitate to call it my dog, but he he lives in my house. His name is DJ. He's, He's a small little Yorkie poo. Uh, and Sienna and DJ are, are kind of best buds. They, they, it was like love at first sight. Um, so earlier this week, when it was just my, my brother and his family staying with us, uh, one evening, uh, the four adults thought we would like to take a walk, just the four of us, and talk. And we were going to leave uh, my niece and nephew in the care of my daughters. Uh, but we had a small hitch in the plan. We, we explained it, and my niece said, I want to come. And, you know, I thought right away, like, well, you really, you don't, it's going to be long and hot. And so, you know, I was, I was, trying, to, I was trying to figure out how to present this to her in, in a sort of, you know, obvious, rational way that would help her see that's not really what she wants to do. So I said, oh, I don't know, Sienna, I, I don't think you really do want to come. It's really hot outside. Her response, yes, I do. I said, okay, uh, well, I, I mean, I don't know if you really want to walk with us. We're going to walk really fast and really far, farther than you want to walk. I, I don't know if you really want to be along for that. Yes, I do. I thought, okay. Uh, I was, you know, reaching for some other argument that I could bring to bear on the situation when her mom intervened and said, well, Sienna, you're, of course you can come with us. That would be great. Oh, but if you came with us, who's going to stay here and take care of DJ? Right away, she perked up and went, oh, I will stay here and take care of DJ. I'll take care of DJ. And her mom said, oh, you know what? I think that's really smart. I think DJ would be really happy if you were here to take care of him. Oh, yeah, he would like it if I took care of him. Now, look, apart from whatever that might suggest about child psychology (laughs) and my inability to wield it, uh, there, there is an important lesson there, I think, which is that if you want to be persuasive, you need to know your audience, right? And I bring this up today because today what we're going to consider together is the large but important question of how we can be faithful witnesses in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools, our buildings, wherever God has you at this season of life. And in particular, I want us to think about what it looks like to be faithful witnesses in an environment that's difficult uh, or indifferent or even hostile to our faith. Uh, because those are the situations that are tricky, right? Those are the ones where it's hard. Look, if, if you're in a situation, let's just say, because you might be, you might be in an environment that is very open and curious about the gospel. And hey, if that's where you are, if you're in an open, curious situation, then just talk to people about Jesus, right? It's not always easy, but it's at least pretty straightforward, the stuff that's hard, the situations that are hard where we struggle, is what do we do? What does a faithful witness look like when the people around us might be hostile or even upset by the very things that we believe? Now, I'll say that when I speak this morning, I'm taking for granted that things in our country have changed, uh, that more people are, at least on the surface, hostile or indifferent than they were in times past. Now, I think reasonable people can and do disagree over the extent to which that has changed, but I think directionally that's true. But maybe a more helpful way to think about that for us as believers is simply to say that, you know, over the last 50, 100 years, our audience here in the U.S., in Minneapolis, has changed. 
And so if we're going to be persuasive in this new context and in this new environment, um, then we need to approach them differently. The content, the core content of the message will not change. It cannot change. But how we present it might and perhaps should. Now, the good news when we find ourselves in an environment that's difficult or you know, even hostile to the gospel, uh, not a lot of good news, but some of the good news is that, guess what? The New Testament is full of examples of just such situations. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is take a look at one great example of this in Acts 17, where we read a record of Paul's visit to Athens. So turn over with me, if you would, Acts 17, starting in verse 16. Now, while you're turning there, I'll just lay out what I'd like to do this morning. I want to read this whole story. It's a little long, but I want to just read it straight through. And then I want to make some observations to reflect back and see what we might learn from Paul's example that can point us in the right direction today. But I do want to save some time at the end, uh, more time than usual maybe, to, to really kind of drill down on a couple specific practical applications for us in our context today. All right, now you know where we're headed. Let's jump in. Acts 17, starting in verse 16, says this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, Uh, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Just a quick note there. They thought he was talking about two gods because they assumed Jesus was one and the resurrection was another. You know, for the Greeks, the divinities often come in gender-matching pairs. So that's what's going on there. Eventually, they took him to the Areopagus saying... Maybe, or may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." 
Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. All right, let me make a few observations from this story. First, I want to point out right away, verse 16, that Paul, when he looked around Athens and saw that it was full of idols, was distressed. He was distressed. And by the way, when you hear that Athens is full of idols, whatever you're picturing in your mind, you should probably quadruple it. It's it's really hard for us to imagine, but they would have been everywhere in the city, from, from private homes to public buildings. And the text says that when Paul saw this, when he, when he saw how saturated the city was with idols, he, his spirit was provoked. It was stirred up. Now, before we unpack what that means, there's an implied point here that I think we should highlight, which is that Paul was a student of his environment. He's paying attention to how the people of Athens lived and worshipped. And later, as we'll see, he even quotes from their poets and philosophers, So what that tells us is Paul has taken the time, he's made the effort to know his audience. He even noted he saw this altar to an unknown God, and he made note of that. He made a point to remember it for later. So Paul has studied his environment, and and what he sees troubles him. Uh, The expression in Greek is difficult to translate, uh, but it's very evocative. Uh, When he sees all these people worshiping idols, it distresses him at his core. Uh, his, his spirit, the very core of his being and identity, is provoked. It's stirred up. So while it's difficult to put an exact English phrase to that, I think this is the part that's important. When Paul sees the city is just saturated in idolatry, he's not dismissive. He's not derisive. He's distressed. He's grieved. And yes, he's, he's a little bit angry to see that so many people who are lost are being led still further from the truth. Paul saw all around him a city blind to the truth about Jesus, and it moved him to action. And that should move us too. There are many around us today who simply do not know the truth about Jesus. And that should distress us It should grieve us if we really believe that Jesus is the only way to life and reconciliation with God. Then it should move us to action as it moved Paul. That's my first observation. Second, pretty general observation that follows right after that in the passage, is that Athens is a tough and intimidating place to share the gospel. It's a tough place. Look, in Paul's day, Athens uh, had descended, diminished a bit from her days of past glory, but it was still an important center of culture and learning. So on the one hand, that meant it was an intimidating place to proclaim the gospel. Look, Paul is preaching to a group of people, by and large, who thought of themselves as highly educated, cultured people, people who were reflexively going to respond to Paul proclaiming what he's proclaiming with a fair amount of condescension. And sure enough, we get a couple fun details there. We read that when, when Paul is talking about Jesus, a lot of people are dismissive. Who is, who is this foreign babbler with all these crazy 
religious ideas, right? They respond with derision. They are the intellectuals, the educated, right? He is able to engage now and then in the marketplace and the synagogue with regular people, but he's also being engaged by professional Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. He's being dragged before the Areopagus to make a formal presentation. These are highly educated crowds with little respect for what they saw as Paul's foreign message. Uh, what you should see or understand when you see that is this, this is an intimidating place, an intimidating environment to proclaim Jesus and the resurrection. But to be fair, and I do want to be fair, Athens at least has this going for it. It was used to debate and discussion. Look, where other cities can and did just straight up run Paul out of town, that's why he's in Athens, he was run out of Berea, Athens at least is willing to hear him out. They ask Paul for an explanation. Uh, they don't really give him very much deference or respect, but he is at least invited to explain himself. And so Paul does. So, so far, Paul is distressed, uh, and yet he wants to share the gospel in this intimidating city. So how, how does he do it? Well, my third observation is that when Paul does proclaim Jesus, he begins by establishing common ground. He begins by finding common ground, and then he stands on that common ground and points boldly and clearly to Jesus. Let me just give you or highlight a couple examples of that. So if you look in verse 22, when Paul makes his presentations, he begins by noting, he says, hey, I've noticed as I've been here in Athens that you, the people of Athens, are very religious, just as Paul himself is. Right? He finds a little common ground there in religious observance. Uh, he then notes in 23, hey, I was, I was walking through looking at your places of worship. I found an altar to this unknown God. And Paul's going to claim that. He said, you worship an unknown God, it's your lucky day. This is the God that I know and can make known to you. So he begins by finding some common ground with the people of Athens, but, and this part is equally important, he doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't go, isn't it nice that we found this nice tiny little patch of common ground? How great. Well, no, once he finds common ground, he steps into it. This, this altar you have to an unknown God, let me proclaim that God to you. He stands in that common ground and points boldly and powerfully to Jesus Christ. That's what he does. But even here, even as he then begins to lay out the gospel to explain to them the God that he knows, he uses their, he draws on their culture and their thought. Look, if, look at your translation. If verse 28 in, in your Bible is offset, it's given that sort of poetic formatting where the whole thing is indented, that's because Paul in, in that verse is quoting from two of their philosophers, poets, that kind of overlaps for them, uh, Epimenides and Eratus, people who would have been known to the people of Athens. Now, I point this out because it does a couple things, right? First, it meets the Greeks on their own territory. It earns Paul a little bit of respect. Remember the people earlier who wanted to dismiss him as some kind of foreign babbler, you know, uneducated, maybe a little bit crazy? Now that's a little bit harder to do. I mean, if you're Athenian, how, how crazy can he be? How uneducated can he be if he's not only aware of, of your poets, of your philosophers, he's able to quote them from memory. So it earns Paul some respect right off the bat. It meets them on their territory. 
Uh, second thing it does is it shows them respect. Look, some of the people of Athens uh, have treated him with condescension, but he has returned that not with more of the same, but with respect for their culture, for their thought, for the way that they live and they worship. And he uses that respect as a platform to earn a hearing to proclaim Jesus. All right, final observation. So he's, he's found some common ground. He's pointing to Jesus. He does it, I think we have to admit, brilliantly, eloquently, drawing on this uh, Athenian thought. But even still, the response, I think we have to say, is mixed. Look again at verses 32 to 34. When Paul finishes his presentation, most of the people can be divided into two categories. You got people that heard him and mocked him for what he said, and you heard people that heard him and thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I'd like to hear more, right? And then there are a few, when we get a couple of verses down, we find out that there's a handful of people who heard him and believed. Now, I see a couple instructive lessons here that I want to tease out. First, and I think it's important just to say this, to identify it. And the first thing is that in some situations, professing faith in Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection is going to result in scorn. It will. Friends, the gospel that we proclaim is foolishness to many, at least at first. It's tempting to hide from that. It's tempting to try and figure out how we can change that. But sometimes that's just the reality. And it does us no good to hide from it or pretend it's not true. The proper response to that just fact about reality is to pray and to ask God for courage to proclaim it anyway. Because sometimes when we proclaim Jesus, we're going to, be, we're going to get mockery and scorn in return. And yet... And yet, at the same time that Paul is mocked, some believed, and more still became curious. So what does that tell us? Well, if Paul's goal was to earn the respect and admiration of all of his peers, he failed. Most did not believe. Many responded with scorn. So if that was Paul's goal, it didn't work. But, if Paul's goal was to testify to the truth about Jesus Christ, perhaps, then, then he succeeded. Because everyone at the very least, everyone in the Areopagus, heard the truth. Some, perhaps, maybe even most, for the very first time. I think this is important for us as we consider our own environment. We're going to have to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, What's our goal when we share Jesus? What's our goal as we seek to be a faithful witness? If we're looking simply for the approval of our peers, that's going to be tough. If we're looking simply to to force everyone else to, to agree that we are right and they are wrong, that's going to be difficult. But if our goal is simply to point them to Jesus however we can, toward the only source of life, salvation, and resurrection, that's what Jesus has called us to do. And I think it's important for us to recognize we can't always do both at the same time. Sometimes you'll proclaim it and you will earn respect, but sometimes you won't. 
But no matter how people respond, you have still pointed them to Jesus, to something that they desperately need. All right, I know I moved through those quickly, but I, and hopefully there's already some things in there that you find helpful for your own situation. But I wanted to, to transition now and to take some time to, to really dig down deep on a couple of applications for our own situation and context. Uh, just some, some advice and I think biblical instruction as we consider what it looks like to live as a faithful witness. So I want to take a couple minutes on, on two of these. First, you know, as I reflect back on this, one big lesson I draw from this for myself is that if we want to be a faithful witness, we need to believe and then live like we have something of great worth that everyone needs. We need to believe and live like we have something of great worth that everyone needs. Look back at the very first verse in our passage, verse 16. Notice how it begins. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. While Paul was waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within them. Now, if you look earlier in the chapter and try to figure out why he's waiting, the answer is he had been in Berea with Timothy and Silas and people came from Thessalonica and they, I mean, they literally ran him out of town. Paul was forced to leave. So some friends escorted him out of Berea and they took him to Athens and they said, you know what, you're just a little too controversial right now in, in Berea. Let, let Silas and Timothy work. Wait here for them to rejoin you in Athens. He's just cool in his heels. This isn't a planned stop on the missionary journey. He's just waiting to regroup so they can move on to where they're going next, which is Corinth. And yet, when he looks around and sees a city saturated by idolatry, a city in which so few have heard about Jesus Christ, he, he can't help himself. And again, I take you to that, that very evocative phrase, his spirit, the core of who he is, is provoked, it's stirred up. It's distressed by what he sees. Now, it's worth asking, by the way, why that would be. Because everywhere he goes in the Greco-Roman world, he's going to encounter rampant idolatry. Why is he provoked? Why is he stirred up when, he's, when he, all he's supposed to be doing is just waiting, relaxing, recovering? Why is he stirred up? Well, he's distressed because he believes to, his core, to the core of his being that he has something that every man, woman, and child in Athens desperately needs. Salvation in Jesus. And I think the reason, when you reflect on this in his whole life, the reason that Paul is such a compelling witness in city after city is because he believes to the core of who he is that in Jesus, he has laid hold of something precious, something beyond compare. And that conviction, the personal conviction, is constantly spilling out of his life, no matter who is around him, no matter where he is, and no matter what the cost. Because if you believe what Paul believes about Jesus, it changes your life. It just does. I thought a lot about this point this week, and in particular, why it is that I don't, always respond the way Paul responds here. Uh, and here's where I think we get stuck. It's, I know it's where I get stuck. It might be where you get stuck. I'll leave that to you to decide. But here's what I think. I think we get stuck because we, for lack of a better explanation, we get distracted. 
That's it. We, we allow other things, other concerns, other interests, other troubles to push the gospel out of the center of our mind in life just a little bit out to the periphery. It's still there. It's, it's just on the periphery. We get distressed and provoked and worked up by other things, things that have moved into the center. So the question for us this morning, I think, is how do we keep that, the gospel, at the center of our mind and our life? Because it's not going to happen on its own. It just won't, I promise. Well, I think the way to do that is that we need to cultivate habits and practices in our lives that reinforce the centrality and importance of the gospel. I think of it like recalibrating a compass. All right? Uh, every once in a while, it just gets off. It has to be recalibrated. You have to make sure the, mo- the needle is pointing to true north. Every once in a while, actually quite regularly, my heart needs to be recalibrated. I need to make sure that it is pointing straight at Jesus Christ. You know, I know my heart needs to be recalibrated when I'm, not respo- when I'm responding to those who don't know Jesus, not with compassion or distress, but with anger and fear. I, I know there's a problem. When I, in the course of my, my everyday life, find that, that I am short of patience, that I'm holding on to grudges, man, I, I, that's the red flag. Okay, I, I'm out of calibration here. I need, to, I need to stop, I need to pause, I need to recalibrate. Um, That's going to look a little different for everybody and in each situation, but here's just a few examples of what that looks like. It looks like stopping, taking some time to pray, asking God to conform your heart and your mind to his. It's going to mean sitting down, reading in God's word, asking his story to shape the way that we think and live and see those around us. It's going to mean doing what we're doing this morning, gathering together with other believers, worshiping God, reminding ourselves that we too are debtors to the awesome grace of God each and every day. You'll need to find what helps you recalibrate and what you need, but don't ignore those warnings. When they show up, when you find yourself responding to someone in anger, oh, okay, I need to recalibrate, I need to recalibrate. Let me say one more thing about that. I would suggest to you that the more our our culture drifts from our values and our worldview, the more important cultivating those habits and practices is going to become. Because those practices, those habits remind us who we are. They remind us what we have in Christ Jesus. It helps Keep the majesty of the gospel at the core of our being. And I'll just tell you this, I promise you. Because you know it. When you, when you come out of that powerful time of worship, when you're in God's word and it just cuts you to the core, you know how you live after that. It spills out of you. The joy spills out of you. Uh, the truth spills out of you. Man, the more our culture drifts from us, the more important it's going to be to cultivate those practices and values, so that no matter where we are, no matter who's around us, uh, the gospel of Jesus is spilling out. One final application this morning. If we want to be faithful witnesses in a difficult and intimidating environment, we need to love our neighbors for real. I I added the for real because I know we all know this. We talk about it all the time. Second greatest commandment. Great. I know we know that's good. But, but what, is that, what does that actually look like? What does it mean? What is it asking of us in our daily lives? 
How do we get to the point, in other words, where you can look at your neighbor, like the person who lives next to you, how you can look at your coworker, how you can look at the other students in your school and you can say, I, I love that person. Like, I love that person. Well, let me suggest a couple things. If we're going to actually cultivate genuine love for those around us, we first have to put in the work to know and understand them. And this is often a long and slow process that requires building trust, asking questions, and then, you know, actually listening to those answers, taking them seriously on their own terms. Look, when Paul addresses the Athenians, it's easy to overlook this or to just say, well, this is just Paul, he's just brilliant and educated. But when he addresses the Athenians, he quotes to them from their poets and their philosophers. He demonstrates a knowledge of their religion, the way that they live and they worship. And when he does that, he is communicating to them, you matter enough to me that I spent time to get to know you, to know how you think, to know what you value, and to know how you worship. Friends, that is a powerful, powerful tool. It's a powerful thing. I've said it before, uh, but I think it's a helpful mental picture. It is for me. Look, if you want to give someone directions from where they are to where you are, it's really hard to do that if you don't know where they're starting from. It's very difficult. Paul wants to bring them to where, they, where he is, to, to, the, to the truth of Jesus. But in order to do that well, he has to know where they're starting from. Loving neighbors means getting to know and understand them. Loving neighbors also means looking, like seeking their best interest. Pastor Joel said it last week. If we want to bear witness to Jesus in, in an indifferent or even hostile world, we need to seek the best interest of those around us. That's what love does. Uh, it, if you think about it, it's what those who love you do for you. They seek your best interest. Even, by the way, when that comes at a cost to them. And listen, I think if you thought about it, if you reflect on your own life, those are the people that you listen to. Those are the people whose advice and wisdom and guidance and feedback and criticism even that you take seriously. The people who know you, the people who understand you, and the people who repeatedly seek your best interest. When they have something to say to you, you listen. You listen. And that is exactly what genuine love for others, that's how it will earn us a hearing for the gospel. Love will change more hearts and more minds than even the most eloquent arguments. And in a world that is at times indifferent or even hostile, love dismantles suspicion, it disarms defenses, and it invites no rebuttal. So I, I, this week, I'm talking with my brother and his wife who, who are missionaries in Thailand. Uh, we're talking about this topic that I'm preaching about, being a faithful witness in a difficult environment. And my brother just, you know, right away goes, oh yeah, you know, man, Thailand is like 98% Buddhist. And immediately I was like, oh yeah. And it was just crazy humbling right away. Because what I meant by a difficult environment is a, Christ is a, is a, a country that's slightly less Christian than it was 10 years ago, right? Where only, what, 50, 60% of the people proclaim to be Christians? It's a real tough environment. And man, I started thinking about that. We, we are sending people, we're sending them. We're sending people to the Czech Republic 
that, that is, I don't know what the numbers are right now, but something like 90% atheist. That's a tough environment. I'm not trying to belittle the difficulties we face here. We face some significant challenges in our own context. We face significant challenges right here in Minneapolis. But here's, some lesson, here's a lesson from people who are in contexts, I think we would even have to admit that are slightly more challenging than ours. Man, Matt, Audrey, how does the gospel go forward in Thailand? Well, often, just ask them, talk to them later. It's a long, slow process. You get to know people. You, you seek to know them and understand them. You ask them about their life and their challenges. You ask them what they believe and what's important to them, and you listen when they respond to you. And then you love them. You seek their interest. You put them first, even when it comes at a cost to you, and you let them see that you are doing that over weeks and months and maybe even years. And you know what? You ask, they'll tell you. That will get you a hearing for the gospel. Doesn't matter how difficult the environment might at first appear. Uh, he told me something. I haven't been able to fact check it yet, but uh, he works with somebody over there that's over there with uh, Southern Baptists who said, you know, he's been crunching the numbers and he said, man, the growth of Christianity we're seeing in Thailand w would be what we would consider like revival like levels. But we don't really talk about it, we don't really know about it because it's not producing mega churches, it's producing. Dozens and dozens of little house churches. It's hard work. It's slow work. Knowing people, understanding people, loving people. But friends, that's how the gospel goes forward. And it's worth saying, as I close, because I can't resist it, it's always how the gospel has gone forward. When God, when God wanted to draw the world to himself, he came to earth, armed not with the sharpest swords or the greatest arguments, but with a deep and costly love. My guess is if we all here this morning reflected on why it is that we are here today, it's not because of powerful and persuasive servants, sermons, but because on the cross of Jesus Christ, you have seen a love that can neither be refuted nor denied. You saw a weakness that disarms the strong, and a foolishness that shames the wise. That is the foundation of the kingdom, and it is the victory of God. And the more difficult our environment, the more crucial it is that we cultivate that love in our own lives. The victory of God came through the sacrificial love of Jesus. And if we want to share in that victory, we are going to have to share in that sacrificial love. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the costly love of God revealed for us in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, what can we do but sit in awe of that, uh, but acknowledge just the powerful call that has placed on all of our hearts? God, I pray that what you would help us to do this morning is to trust that the costly love of Jesus the costly love that won the great victory over sin and evil, that costly love that is called billions to his name, would still call people today, wherever we are. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.